I've got some lyrics to a famous song here. I wonder if you can pick them. Though, (laughs) if you can, you might want to keep it to yourself. No, I can't forget tomorrow when I think of all my sorrow. When I had you there, but then I let you go. And now it's only fair I should let you know I can't live. If living is without you, I can't live. I can't give anymore. I can't live. Oh, you've belted this out in the shower. Don't deny it. I can't live if living is without you. Oh, the humanity from the late, great Whitney Houston. Brilliant stuff, isn't it? Now, I want to try and take her chorus seriously today. Uh, Admittedly, not in the way she intended. I want to adapt it for our purposes. I can't live if living is without you. If you were here with us last week, you'll remember uh, how the Israelites treated God shamefully by worshipping the golden calf. And as a direct consequence, God has decided he won't live with his people anymore. Generously, God confirms Israel's still going to receive the promised land as advertised, but the Lord himself will not go with his people. Israel is on their own. And so... How can they live if living is without God? After everything we've seen in the Exodus, it's come to this sad end. Following Israel's treachery, and that's what it was, there's no sugarcoating it, the golden calf was treason. Treason combined with appalling behaviour. There's no way... A holy God can live among such people now. But by the same token, there's no way the Israelites can live without their God. So there aren't going to be any easy solutions here today. Which means if there's going to be a way back for the Israelites, and that's a big if, then only God can make it possible. There is nothing the Israelites can do. No repentance will ever be enough. For reconciliation to be possible, God himself will need to take the initiative and there's no guarantee he will. Would you? For such a people as this? Remarkably, God will make a way and the solution, as we'll see, the only hope for the Israelites, indeed the only hope for you and me, it's found in the glory of God's revealed character, which means what? Compassion and justice, mercy and penalty, forgiveness with full accountability. I want to tackle our passage in three ways, just so you know in advance. The first point will be the longest. You'll be out of here by lunchtime. I will not go with you, point number one. I won't go with you. To which Moses replies, point number two, unless you go with us, which prompts the Lord's solution, compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. Follow with me from the beginning of chapter 33. Beginning of chapter 33, I will not go with you. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. They are at Mount Horeb. This is the mountain of God and they're being told to leave. Go away. 
leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. Go to the promised land. Okay. Then we're told who's currently living in the promised land, but then verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. I will not go with you. At first, this might seem like an attractive offer. Israel gets to enjoy the promised land in all its abundance and better still, they get the promised land but they don't have to worry about God being with them. All those pesky laws, all God's demands, they don't have to worry. And perhaps immediately we've struck our first point of practical consideration. Let me put it to you as a question. What do you want most from God? What do you want most? Jesus teaches us to bring all our requests before our Heavenly Father. That's right and proper to do so. But my question is, what do you want most from him? I'm going to presume that many of you will put at the top of your list the forgiveness of sins, the promise of a heavenly inheritance, maybe. But in the meantime, what do we want from him? We might want him to heal our diseases. We might want him to grow our businesses. Maybe you pray for a spouse. Maybe you pray for that next promotion. Or to put it another way, we might want the things God can provide. Fair enough. But do we want God himself? Are we interested in him? Because that's another question, isn't it? For all their faults, and there are many... Hearing the Lord say, I will not go with you, the Israelites are beginning to appreciate the disaster of the golden calf. God may have agreed that he won't destroy the Israelites in the previous chapter, so they'll escape with their lives, but the Israelites have lost the privilege of enjoying God's presence. I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. How can Israel live if living is without their God? They can't. And they know it. And here again, there are practical considerations. I wonder if part of you feels as if God is overreacting to Israel's sin. I don't know everyone here, but I'm going to presume there's general agreement in the room that we take sin seriously. Sin is a problem. Let me presume that. But does God go too far? Why can't he be the bigger person and get over his anger? After all, we teach toddlers to regulate their emotions, don't we? There was a section in last week's passage in Exodus chapter 32 that made me very uncomfortable. After finding the people engaged in idol worship and pagan revelry, which is a very polite way of describing behaviour that would make people from King's Cross blush, Moses calls to himself those who would remain faithful to the Lord. And do you remember some of the Levites come forward? What do they do next? They strap a sword to their side and they go through the camp killing brother, friend and neighbour. 
and it's no better here. I'll not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Now, you're probably far more godly than me, in which case this is your invitation to judge me for a few minutes, but my natural reaction to God's justice here was to recoil. You mightn't say it out loud, but God's anger seems incredibly harsh, don't you think? But my reaction to God's justice says more about me and my character deficit. My shock at God's justice reveals the extent to which I've grown comfortable with sin. The way I've learned to accommodate sin and the way I so easily shrug off as if nothing the catastrophic relational damage my sin inflicts on my holy God. So let's play out the thought bubble for a minute. God says to the Israelites, I'll not go with you. If he should, as I put it, just move on and get over it, what are we really asking God to do? One option is for God to lessen the demands of his law. Goodness, he could make it a little easier for us, couldn't he? He could lessen the demands of his law or God could lower the demands of his holy character. Would it kill him to put up with people who are less than perfect? Gosh, we have to do that all the time. Lessen the demands of his law, lower the demands of his character or some combination of the two. Either way, God, just move on and get over it. It's not that hard. I wonder how you'd react to the idea of lowering your demands for a significant covenant relationship. Let's take a marriage as examples. I attended a family wedding years ago. It was dreadful for many reasons. The ceremony was memorable, if only for this reason. They're going through the vows, okay? Starts pretty standard, for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That section of promises ends how? As long as... Good. Some of you remember what you promised. As long as we both shall live, all right? Yeah? Okay. That's traditional. Not on this occasion. On this day, the couple promised, as long as the love shall last. (laughs) That's how you lower the demands of a covenant. You strip it of all meaning You take out any of its significance by suggesting God lower the demands of his character, which is really what we're doing when we tell him he should just get over our sin and move on. We are asking God to be less than who he is. I suggest instead of presuming to sit in judgment of God's reaction to our evil, I think we do better to follow the example being set by the Israelites who are beginning to learn a valuable lesson. As they take off their ornaments and wait to see what the Lord is going to do, what do they do? They tremble at his word and they mourn over their sin. Look at chapter 33, verse 4. They've just been told, I will not go with you. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think it's beginning to dawn on the Israelites what their rebellion has cost. 
the Lord will not go with them. To which Moses responds, well, look, unless you go with us. It's worth pausing, I think, just for a moment to consider who Moses has become because he's a very different person to the man we met back in chapter 4. Do you remember? Oh, please, Lord, send someone else. He was frightened of coming before Pharaoh, but here he is. He's arguing before the God of the universe. He's come a long way. Look at the end of verse 13 as he pleads for the people. Remember that this nation is your people. Imagine telling God to remember something. It's bold, isn't it? I think we can learn something from Moses here about how to approach God in prayer. It's not the point of the passage, but it is worth noticing. Moses is bold, but he's not rude. He's direct without being disrespectful. He's insistent without becoming ill-mannered. God may choose to speak with Moses as a friend, but it's not a friendship of equals, and Moses remembers that. And yet, for all the friendly vibes, Moses sees the problem. How can God's people be God's people if God won't go with his people? That's the point of verse 13 as Moses pleads for the Israelites. Remember, this is your people. What good is it living in the promised land if the promised giver isn't there with you? Which means Whitney Houston was right. Israel can't live if living is without their God. So what's the answer? How can a holy God live among a sinful people? It's not an easy question to answer, but the answer lies in God's character. Chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked. That is, I'll go with you to the promised land because I'm pleased with you, Moses, and I know you by name. For the second time in as many chapters, Moses has successfully mediated for the good of his people. But we should realise the problem has not been solved. The people remain sinful. God remains holy. So what if there's another golden calf style disaster? How can Moses be reassured of God's ongoing presence among his people? All of which leads Moses to ask a remarkable question of the Lord. Show me your glory. Moses wants a visual reference point. And I'll admit there have been times when, gosh, I wish God would make a visible reference point for me. Maybe I can't be the only one in the room who's ever felt like this, where you would wish God to do something visible. But in this case, it's worth noticing, instead of seeing his glory, Moses... Well, he gets a message from God, does he? He gets words. I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm going to tell you who I am. Moses wants to see something. Instead, Moses hears something. And I wonder if that might seem like a rip-off to you. You think of God's glory. That's what Moses has asked for and all he gets is words. Surely there's more to God's glory than words. I sometimes meet people and they say to me, I want a deeper experience of God. And I say, fantastic, go forth. 
But from what I've seen, instead of searching for this deeper experience of God in his revealed word, often what they're looking for is the buzz, the feels, the hype, the light show. And that's not what Moses gets, not really. He won't get to see anything particularly. Instead, he gets words, reassurance of God's settled character. I said at the start, if Israel has a way back here, It's only going to be through the character of the God who is revealed. Turn with me to chapter 34. Chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This should be a memory verse. What am I like, Moses? You want to know my glory because that's what you've asked for? Well, here it is. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Compassion and justice, mercy and penalty, forgiveness along with full accountability. For his own good, Moses didn't see God's glory, yet what he heard of God's glory was enough for him to fall down in worship. And so as I draw these threads together, I want you to know God remembered this moment. Moses asks to see God's glory. He didn't see it, but God remembered. And Moses would see God's glory, but when he did, what did he see? What did God's glory look like? Let me read to you from Luke chapter 9, where Moses, the leader of the first exodus, meets the leader of the second exodus. Luke chapter 9, Jesus took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Well, there you go, we're on another mountain. How about that? As he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure a very carefully chosen word. Actually, super literally, the word departure here is exodus. They are speaking with Jesus about his exodus. And what does his exodus look like? They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which he is about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. And what's about to happen in Jerusalem? The ultimate expression of God's glory. We might think God's glory lies somewhere around his overwhelming presence or his physical brilliance. But as glorious as God's appearance will be, and it will be, fundamentally God's glory lies in his character. The one who at his own cost makes a way back for sinners to walk free, compassion and justice, mercy and penalty, forgiveness along with full accountability, combined where? At the cross. As the Son of God absorbs the wrath of God that we might become the children of God. There's the glory that Moses saw. We can't live if living is without God. But to the praise of his glory revealed in Jesus, we don't have to fear being cast out of God's presence, he will go with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, what does he promise? Behold, I am with 
you. So we've gone from I will not go with you to behold, I will be with you until the end of the age. There is the glory of God. Compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, not treating us as our sins deserve. There's the glory of God revealed in his character. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your patient love, even when we are poor at remembering who you've made us to be, who you've called us to be. We do thank you for the gift of your son and we pray for the work of your spirit in our hearts. Would you so motivate us to live rightly as your people? And Father, we thank you for your ongoing presence especially this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, would you increase our anticipation of meeting Jesus face to face? Would you sustain us in the meantime, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.